tonight, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. Um, we're going to be a little bit shorter than we have been on some of these, um, just because I'm, I'm only going to cover one topic tonight instead of trying to do more than one, which I had originally thought I was going to do. But if you can stay around afterwards for a few minutes and just help us put the auditorium, uh, get the auditorium set up for the ladies thing, that would be very, very helpful. We'll get all the chairs stacked up and get the tables and chairs out, and then ladies are going to decorate it uh, the rest of the week and, and uh, get that all set up. But if you can stay after for a few minutes and help with that, that would be a big help. Let's step back and review here, all right? We've been talking about the false doctrines in the Catholic Church. What are the false doctrines we have talked about? Let's try to do them in order if we can. Johan, what's the first one? That the Roman Catholic Church is the only true church. Very good. What's the second false doctrine that we talked about? No. Emma? The what? The priesthood, the priesthood, very good. Third one, that was, that, was la- that was number seven, we'll come to that one in a second, that was last week, Josh, you don't read very well, church tradition equals scriptural authority, very good, number four, these number four and five kind of went together, Alex, Peter and the next one? The Pope, right? We're talking about Peter and, and their false belief about Peter, which is then going to give them false belief about the Pope. So number six, Nitin? Mary. Mary, right? Their belief about Mary, which I added this into it, but it's actually it's called Mariolatry, and really it is the idolatry of Mary, making Mary, uh, you know, a, an idol is exactly what it is. And then Mr. Forbes mentioned it already, the sacraments. So what are the sacraments? What's the first one? Jackson? Johan, baptism, that's the first one. Then what comes after baptism? Johan, nope. Emma, confirmation. Confirmation is the second thing. And then the third one we, we only mentioned and we moved on. Johan, priesthood, holy orders, all right. Number four. The Eucharist, which would be the Mass, and we spent a lot of time on that. And then last week, we did the last three. Alex? Penance is number five. Then the last two. Brother Eric? Marriage. And the last one. Emma? Anointing of the sick. Very good. All right. So we're done with the sacraments. What we're going to talk about tonight is another one of the false doctrines of the Catholic Church, and that is purgatory. What is purgatory? Well, the, the word purgatory literally means to purge or to cleanse. And so obviously you can kind of get an idea of what that is, but all the unbaptized adults and all of those who after baptism have committed mortal sins go straight to hell. So according to the Catholic Church, because I've never been baptized in the Catholic Church, I go straight to hell. Those who, even if you have been baptized in the Catholic Church, if you've committed a mortal sin, you go straight to hell. But all the people who die who are actually at peace with the church, and isn't it amazing how uh, they make themselves the center of all of that, but, but they're not morally perfect, they have to finish atoning for their sins by going and spending some time in hell or purgatory where they are going to suffer until their sins are purged away. That's where the idea of purgatory comes from. And so 
after this unspecified time. It, it, the, more you, the more sins you have that are unconfessed, the more sins you've not done penance for, the longer your time in purgatory is going to be. But after that, after that time in purgatory, however long it happens to be, then your soul goes to heaven. That's if you've never committed a mortal sin, and that's if you've been baptized in the Catholic Church. You have the hope that someday, after you've had all your sins burned off, then you get to go uh, to heaven. Purgatory is said to be a place of, of suffering, and until recently, um, I say recent, recently, I mean, it's been within the last 20 or 30 years, but I mean, you're talking about thousands, a couple thousand years of, of Catholic Church history, it is very recent, but until recently, they, you know, purgatory was always described as a, as a place of this fiery pain, honestly, very much like, like hell is described in the Bible. But a lot of Catholic priests today actually teach that the fire of purgatory that was taught in these former days is actually more of a symbolic type thing, which isn't that a crazy, I mean, what's the point of going to purgatory if it's just symbolic? You know, your sins are being burned off, but they're not really being burned off. It's just a symbolic thing and whatever. But um, they say masses uh, for the dead in the belief that those rituals and those prayers can actually help get somebody out of purgatory. Uh, even popes, even the popes are, 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 are said to not be exempt from purgatory. When Pope, uh, when Pope Paul died a few years ago, <clears throat> they had special masses that were held all over the world to try to help pray him out of purgatory. He's a pope, so he shouldn't have to spend a long time in purgatory, so let's get the whole world praying for him to get him out, right? Let me give you a few quotes <clears throat> from some of their different writings. The doctrine of purgatory clearly demonstrates that even when the guilt of sin has been taken away, punishment for it or the consequences of it may remain to be expiated or cleansed. They often are. In fact, in purgatory, the souls of those who died in the charity of God and truly repentant, but who have not made satisfaction with adequate penance for their sins and omissions, are cleansed after death with punishment designed to purge away their debt. That comes from Vatican Council too. Here's another one. The church teaches us that after death, the soul still has to suffer purification. That's the meaning of the word purgatory, before it's able to see God. It will certainly be a painful purification. That is why it is represented by the image of a fire. Another quote from the handbook for today's Catholic. This doctrine of purgatory reflected in Scripture and developed in tradition was clearly expressed in the Second Council of Lyons in A.D. 1274. Besides declaring the fact of purgatory, the Second Council of Lyons also affirmed that, quote, the faithful on earth can be of great help to persons undergoing purgatory by offering for them the sacrifice of the mass, prayers, almsgiving, and other religious deeds. So all of those doctrines, and we're going to talk about these in a little bit more detail each, but kind of all of the doctrines of purgatory are mentioned in those, in those three quotes. You're going to go spend some time getting your sins burned off. And even if you were a good person, even if you had a lot, you, basically you, you cannot die without spending some time in purgatory. And because you're going to go there, then other people are going to have to pray for you. Other people are going to have to give money. Other people are going to have to do mass on your behalf. Other people are going to have to do penance on your behalf if you expect to ever get out of purgatory. Uh, now, the doctrine of purgatory obviously does not rest in Scripture. Notice they didn't say it's based on Scripture. They said it's reflected in Scripture and then carried on through tradition, Right? Uh, they have nothing to base it on. They try, which we're going to look at in just a minute, but it, obviously there's nothing to base it on. It, it, it really is just twistic Roman Catholic Church logic. They, they have the unscriptural distinction, which we're going to talk about this next, or not next week, because we'll be, I'll be gone, but the week after. They have the unscriptural dis, uh, distinction between mortal sins and venial sins, 
which those are the ones that you can actually get burned off in purgatory. You cannot get a mortal sin burned off in purgatory. You're destined to hell forever if you've committed one of those mortal sins. But there's this, this unscriptural concept that a man has to suffer for his own sins, even though he has been forgiven by God. And that's what they clearly said. You may have been forgiven already, but you still have to atone for those sins. It's like, it's like somebody who has been given a, uh, um, a what's the word I'm looking for? A, a pardon. A, a, a prisoner that's been given a pardon who still has to spend time in prison. It doesn't make any sense. Why, I mean, you've been pardoned. You don't, you don't have to pay for your sins anymore. And that's exactly what purgatory is. You've been forgiven, but you still have to pay for that sin. Well, have you been forgiven or not? If you've been forgiven and pardoned, then you're free from the punishment of that sin as well, right? Not according to the Catholic Church, not according to purgatory. So, so those that are in purgatory right now can do nothing to shorten their time in purgatory. Uh, even God himself cannot shorten your time in purgatory because, as, as we, we agree with, God's uh, justice demands that there be a payment. Now, Jesus Christ was that payment. They don't see it that way. So God can't even shorten your time in purgatory because there has to be that justice and there has to be that time where you're paying for your sins. Uh, but fortunately for your loved ones, purgatory is under the, uh, the dispensation of the Pope and he can shorten the time that your loved ones stay there, provided you pay money to help get them out, provided you pay money to have the priest read masses for them, provided that you uh, do penance and all of those other things. Uh, purchase indulgences, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But what are the effects? What are the effects of the doctrine of purgatory? Well, number one, it's just sad funerals. I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic funeral. I've been to a couple of them. And they're awful if you've ever been to one. There's, there's no hope. The very best, the very best that they can hope for in a Catholic funeral and, and the very best that they can, you know, the very best hope that they can give the loved ones that are there that are suffering is, uh, hey, now your loved one is suffering in the agony of purgatory. Isn't that great? It's so exciting that they finally died and they get to go to their reward, right? Well, what's your reward? You get to go burn in hell for a while. There's no hope in that. Now, you compare that to a Christian funeral where we say, hey, this person died and now they're out of pain. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're not in you know, dealing with whatever it was that they were dealing with before they died and all those things. They're in heaven with Jesus, right? That's hope. That's encouraging. Um, I couldn't only imagine how discouraging it would have been after my mom died if all I could get up and say was, well, she's burning in hell right now, but hopefully someday before too long, those sins will be burned off and she can get out and go to heaven, right? I mean, that's, that's discouraging. That's sad, right? And there's no hope in that. The other thing that, the, that this doctrine produces or the other effect of this is gigantic cathedrals. Where do you think the Roman Catholic Church gets the money to be able to build these massive churches that they built, right? It's not just people that are saying, oh, this is wonderful, let's go donate. And, and you do have some who, who give tithes and whatever else to the Catholic Church. But um, uh, where do you think they got the money, especially during the Middle Ages when they were building all these, you know, all these old cathedrals that you see in Europe and stuff? I mean, they were in the Dark Ages. There was not a lot of money that was, that was even to be had during that time, really, by the average common person. Well, a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel, he lived from 1465 to 1519. He was a Dominican monk, and his job was selling these indulgences. And an indulgence is basically a remission of the temporal punishment of sin in purgatory. He is selling 
basically a, a, a ticket that will help you, um, and, and I don't, I mean, it's not, it's not exactly this, but to kind of help you understand, it's basically like you can buy a ticket that will get a year off of your time in purgatory. And it just depends on how long you have to spend there. I mean, only God knows how long your time in purgatory is, but hey, you can buy an indulgence, and that indulgence will help you get time off of your purgatory. And the more indulgences you buy, the less time you have to, your loved ones, not you, your loved ones have to spend in purgatory. And so he was selling these indulgences at Juderborg near Wittenberg in Germany in the spring of, of 1517, which if you know anything about what happened around that time, that's when Martin Luther was so outraged about what he was seeing, pretty much in relation to watching Johann Tetzel selling these indulgences to people who had absolutely nothing, no money. And that's when Martin Luther went and posted the 95 Thesis on the door of the Catholic Church, and that's what started the, the Reformation in 1517. Um, but Tetzel was, was known as the Pope's salesman, and, and really the proceeds of all of that money that he got from, from those poor people uh, who were just doing everything they could to get their loved ones out of purgatory, uh, they used most of that money to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is one of the most ornate, one of the largest Catholic churches in the world. Um, Johann Tetzel coined the phrase, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. I mean, if that is not, if that is not exactly a description of what, of what selling these indulgences to get people out of purgatory is all about, right? You ever seen um, uh, the little, uh, they have other versions of it, so, so forgive me, I'm not talking about those, but have you ever seen the... Uh, the cartoon version of Robin Hood, and, uh, you know, you got the, the sheriff of Nottingham and all these other guys walking around, and, you know, here's this one little old lady walking down with a, a tiny little bag, and they bonk her on the head, and the coin flops out into his cup, you know, and that's all she has. I mean, that's essentially what this selling of indulgences was. Do you want your loved one to spend eternity in purgatory? Then you better give money. You better buy these indulgences. And they were getting rich off of it. They were using that money to build these massive, ornate cathedrals and everything else. And that, that form of religious extortion has, has made the Vatican just filthy rich throughout the, the years to the tune of billions and billions of dollars that they've gotten from, not just from people giving money or leaving, you know, leaving fortunes to the Catholic Church, but specifically from the sale of indulgences to try to get their loved ones out of, out of purgatory. Now it's called an offering, but it's still put into practice to this day. It's not called an indulgence anymore. It's just called an offering. Same thing, though. It's the exact same thing. Th think about that with me for a minute. If you did have the power to shorten people's stay in purgatory, how sick would you have to be to charge people for it? You know, you're a pope. You have the power to shorten somebody's time in purgatory, and you're not going to do it unless you pay. I'm not going to do that for you unless you pay me. How, how, how twisted do you have to be to have that mindset? You know, and how does the priest know when that soul is released from purgatory? Does he get an email from the devil? You know, does God send him an email? Or does he get to the point where he finally feels like he's milked enough money out of you and he says, you know what, now your loved one is out of purgatory, you don't have to pay anymore. Right? I mean, it's completely up to him. There is no, there's nothing that's set in stone that when you die, it says automatically, well, you had all this to your account, so this is your time in purgatory. <laughs> Why is that so funny? Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. I mean, there is, there, there is no, Jackson's my biggest cheerleader up here. If there, if, if anybody's going to laugh, he's going to, but, um, 
there, there, it's completely up to the Pope to decide when your time in purgatory is done. And how does he decide that? I guess you've finally given enough money, so you, you've done a great job. Your loved one can now come out of purgatory. What a, what a twisted idea. You know, what a, does the Pope know how many sins you've actually committed? Obviously, those were sins that you didn't repent of and do penance for. So how do they know, right? It's just a, just a twisted, twisted thing. So let's look at this as we, as we finish up, the, the Bible answer to purgatory. And it, it almost seems silly to, to have to go to the Bible to answer this false teaching on purgatory because the answer really is so obvious. But the answer is, is that purgatory is not taught in the Bible. Um, not only that, but it's, it's, it's not only is it not taught in the Bible, it's actually contrary to the Bible's teaching about salvation. It's, it's, it's based on a gross misunderstanding and a, and a perversion of the gospel. And it's true that no sin can enter into heaven, right? And that's kind of what they're basing it on. But the, 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 the words that we find in the Bible that define the message of the gospel uh, explain that, that this purgation that is essential for getting your sins purged off are taken care of when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we've accepted him as our Savior, right? You don't have to do anything else. Jesus Christ did all of that for you. Redemption, that idea of redemption means to be purchased from the slave market of sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Propitiation means that the sin debt has been satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. Justification means that the believer is declared righteous by Almighty God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, right? So let's look at a couple things here. Number one, the Roman Catholic Church scripture passages that support purgatory actually do no such thing. And we'll find there in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11 is one of the passages that they try to use to support the idea of purgatory from the Bible. Verse number 11, Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, that's referring to those who are unsaved. That's what the chaff is, right? Those are the people who go to hell because they've never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's not talking about people who have been saved and sanctified and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, and now you're going to get your sins purged off. That's talking about the people who never accepted Christ in the first place, right? The only two options are saved or lost. Baptized with the Spirit or baptized with fire and hell. That's it. The other passage that they use is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over there. And again, this is a passage that we're familiar with. And probably you've never read that passage and thought, wow, that's talking about purgatory. But that's what they read and that's what they say. And I don't know if, I don't know if somewhere along the line some pope came across that passage and read it and said, wow, this, is, this, this idea is in the Bible of purgatory. Or if it was just that they came up with this idea and then they started looking in the scripture to see if they could find something that would semi-support it. I don't know which came first, right? Uh, but either way, it's, it's, it's twisted logic because it's not based on what the Bible actually says. Verse number 13, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. The whole context is that not all of our good works are going to be acceptable unto God. It's not saying that, that you're going to, you know, the, uh, some, of your, some of your bad works are going to have to go be burned off, right? It's saying that some of your good works are, are not going to stand the test because of what? Because of your motives. 
If you didn't do it out of the right motives, if you weren't motivated by you know, doing it for the glory of God, you were motivated for pleasing man or whatever else, those are things that are built out of wood, hay, and stubble, and they're going to collapse. But the foundation is already there. It's the foundation is Jesus Christ, and then you've built on top of that. It's the works that are done from those bad motives that, that, that get burned up. So what that means is no reward for you, right? Not you're going to go spend time in, in hell burning off those, those bad things that you did. Uh, it's not our souls that are being burned until we suffer sufficiently for our sins. It's the good works that are being burned. And it doesn't take a, a hard look into that passage to understand that that's exactly what he's talking about. Roman Catholic Church has no scriptural authority for the teaching of purgatory. Now, their key, quote-unquote, authority for where they get the idea of purgatory comes, uh, where they get the idea of purgatory actually comes from one of the apocryphal books, 2 Maccabees. Now, the apocryphal books are included in the Catholic Bible. Obviously, as Bible-believing Christians, we reject the Apocrypha, namely for the fact that there are a lot of unscriptural ideas in the Apocrypha that, that contradict the rest of the Bible. Um, but according to the Catholic Church, the, the, the Apocrypha and their own tradition are equally authoritative with the Scriptures, um, but uh, a lot of those teachings, like I said, are contrary to the Bible. We're going to talk about the Apocrypha a little bit later on, not tonight. We're going we're gonna to save that for a different night, but it's the Bible alone that's the authoritative word of God. And if you're not basing it on the Bible alone, then it's, it's false. And, of course, the, the Apocrypha, for a lot of reasons that we'll talk about later, is not the Bible. The second reason, or the second Bible answer to purgatory, is, is that uh, when we're saved, we obtain eternal life immediately. Uh, why don't you turn over to John chapter 5. While you're turning over there, for the sake of time, I'll read you First John chapter 5, verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Do you have eternal life or don't you? You don't get eternal life if you have to go spend time in death first, right? It's not eternal life then. It's life, but it's not eternal because it doesn't, it has a, it has a beginning, and, and, and eternal has no beginning and no ending. John chapter 5, verse 24, Very, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I don't know how you can be any clearer than that. That e eliminates completely the idea of purgatory. Shall not come into condemnation. If you're in purgatory, it's because you've been condemned for some of your sins that need to be burned off. You accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you obtain eternal life immediately. Number three, when we die, our soul goes immediately to be with God in heaven. And again, many, many verses in the Bible that support this, but we need to look no further than the example of the thief on the cross. What did Jesus say to him? Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Did he say, well, unfortunately... You came at the last second, but boy, you got a lot of stuff that needs to be burned off, son. I'll see you in about 500 years. You'll get there, but it's going to be a while, right? No, he said, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What does that mean? Was Jesus lying to him? Was Jesus speaking figuratively? Or did he mean, today thou shalt be with me in paradise? To pass from this life means to pass into eternity in heaven if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, another verse that just absolutely decimates the idea of purgatory. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8. We are confident, confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul is talking about the fact that, hey, 
I don't want to die, but if I, if I die, hey, I'd rather be present with the Lord because to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. So we go immediately to, to be with God in heaven. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Well, that's not very restful to go to purgatory, is it? I, I wouldn't say, I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever slept through a fire. I've slept through my alarm, right? I've slept through some other things. I don't think I've ever slept through a fire. Surely not very restful, right? But that's what he says about those who, who die in the Lord. They, they go rest from their labors. Um, Philippians chapter 1, you can turn over there. Paul, Paul was anticipating death because of heaven. And he, he certainly wasn't very moral, being the chief of sinners, right? Now, he became that way, but no record that Paul ever went and confessed his sins or paid penance or any of those things. So, boy, Paul had a whole lot of sins that were accounted to him that he would have had to burn off in purgatory. But what did he say in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 21? For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Certainly not gain if you're spending time in purgatory. And, you know, Paul discussed this idea a decent amount, but he was talking about the resurrection and the translation of Christians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 14. And the apostle Paul says that the Lord Jesus will bring the dead saints with him from heaven when he comes. There's no hint of them coming from some other place like purgatory, right? What happens to those who die five minutes or five years before Jesus Christ comes back to this earth? They're certainly not in heaven with them. They're in hell burning, you know, burning their sins off in purgatory, right? So is he gathering them from purgatory as he comes back? Or do they have to still spend that time there? Right? That, that idea is nowhere in the Bible. Number four, our redemption was completely paid for by Jesus Christ. Turn over to 1 John chapter 1. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? If he wasn't talking about a redemption, I don't know what he was talking about being finished. Right? He wasn't talking about his life. Ah, it's finished. It's over. I'm done. Right? He was talking about our redemption. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from most of our sins. From a lot of our sins. No, he says, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus Christ does not discriminate between, well, those are... No, he cleanses us from all sin. Jesus' blood cleanses the believer from all sin and, and gives us that perfect righteousness before God. We're told in the Bible in Romans chapter 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 9, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3, no true believer is ever going to suffer the fire and the torment for his sins. Death cannot and does not separate the believer from Christ. Nothing can. Jesus Christ's blood has removed that barrier forever. And his blood either did what he said it was going to do, or it didn't do it at all. And I'd take his word for it over the, over the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and everybody else who says that it didn't do all of it. Now, obviously, sin does demand suffering. But the Bible gives us the good news that Jesus Christ took that suffering for us, right? So we don't have to. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was that payment. There is nothing else that we have to pay for that sacrifice has entirely and eternally removed the sin barrier between God and the person who exercises personal faith in Jesus Christ. Number five, Roman Catholic Church has no authority for offering masses for the dead. Uh, the mass supposedly is the Lord's Supper. 
Where in the Bible does, the, does it indicate that the Lord's Supper is to be done for the dead? You're doing it in remembrance of Christ. You don't remember anything after you're dead, right? Why does the Bible teach that the believer is supposed to pray to or for the dead? I don't see that anywhere, right? In fact, any time in the Bible somebody tried to contact the dead, it was, an, it was a whole lot of consequences that came along with it, right? And it was never, it was always condemned. Number six, last thing is this. Money cannot purchase forgiveness or spiritual blessing of any sort. And you think about it, uh, the sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer, tried to pay for the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and he got rebuked hard, right? You can't buy this, so they told him, right? Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. According to the Roman Catholic practice of purgatory, Wealthy people can get out of purgatory a whole lot sooner than poor people because they have a lot more money that they can give toward paying to get out of purgatory, right? Isn't that a benefit? It's so nice to be wealthy. You can get out of purgatory even on top of getting out of all kinds of other things. Now, this, this comes from an article in 1984, so it's been a little, a little while, but um, a guy by the name of Joseph Zacello, and I guess that's how you say it, but he was a former Roman Catholic priest, and he said that priests in the United States make over $22 million a year, and adjusted for inflation, uh, that is over $60 million a year that priests make personally through the sale of, of indulgences and through doing masses and things like that. Uh, you know, you expect that if somebody does a wedding or something like that, you give a little bit of an honorarium or something like that. And, and these priests who do masses and last rites and all of those other things technically are not allowed to charge for it but they expect to be paid for it. And, and they, may, they make over 60, not, not individually, but as a collective. And, I'm, and, and it could have gone up from there. It could have gone down from there. I don't know. But about $60 million on top of the money that they make from the Catholic Church and everything else, $60 million personally that they make from, from doing these things. Tell me that they're not going to keep propagating that idea, right? Oh, no, there's no such thing as purgatory. Stop giving me money, right? It's never going to happen. But... but um, this is just a little bit of information about purgatory, but you can see behind the mystery of why the Roman Catholic Church per perpetuates the concept of purgatory, even, there, even though there's no hint of it in the Bible. The, the, the basis of it all, honestly, is that it's made them rich. The Catholic Church has made billions of dollars off of this idea of purgatory. Who in their right mind wouldn't pay to get their loved one out of hell if they could? Right? Who in their right mind wouldn't do everything they could to get their loved ones away from that suffering? And if you believe it, you're going to do it. Right? And, and so many people do. Uh, but that reminds us of Peter's description of some false teachers in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 3. And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. The Bible contradicts that idea in Acts chapter 8, 1 Peter chapter 1, other places, that that's not what this is about. Not, this is not a house of merchandise, right? Turn over to one last, one last passage in Psalm 49. Psalm 49, I'm going to read you a quote, and then we'll be done. Psalm 49 and verse number 6. They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. This comes from uh, the author's uh, J.A. Wiley. He wrote a book in 1888 called The Papacy. 
This is what he says. Scripture authorizes no such distinction as papists make between venial and mortal sins. It teaches that all sin is mortal, and unless blotted out by the blood of Christ, will issue in the sinner's eternal ruin. It teaches that after death there is neither change of character nor of state, that God does not sell his grace, but bestows it freely, that we are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, that no man can redeem his brother, whether by prayers or by offerings, that the law of God demands of every man, every moment of his being, the highest obedience of which his nature and his faculties are capable, and that since the foundation of the world, a single work of uh, super, super arrogation has never been performed by any of the sons of men, and that therefore the source whence this imaginary fund of merit is supplied has no existence, and is, like the fund itself, a delusion and a fable. And it teaches, in fine, that God pardons men only on the footing of the satisfaction of his son, which is complete and sufficient and needs not to be supplemented by works of human merit, and that when he pardons, he pardons all sin and forever. But the grand criterion by which Rome tests all her doctrines is not their truth, nor their bearing on man's benefit and God's glory, but their value in money. How much will they bring is the first question which she puts. And it must be confessed that in purgatory, she has found a rare device for replenishing her coffers, of which she has not failed to make the very most. Popery, says the author of Kerwin's letters, meets men at the cradle and dogs them to the grave and beyond it with its demands for money. And honestly, that's a, that's a great summar, summation of what purgatory is all about. No pope has ever seen somebody come out of purgatory. No pope has ever watched somebody finally have their sins burned off and end up in heaven. No pope has ever been given a, a letter from God that says, this person is now paid for their sins and they're out and they're here with me. Not once. This idea is completely made up for men and it's completely a fundraising scheme. And that's what they've, that's what they've built all of their cathedrals with. That's what they continue to, to, to line their churches, you know, with, with all the fancy finery that they have in those Catholic churches, because if you believe it, you're going you're gonna to pay for it, right? If I believed that my mother was in purgatory right now, paying for her sins, and I could pay to help her get out, why wouldn't I do it, right? And so many people that have fallen into that Catholic trap have paid hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars into the billions to help get their loved ones out of purgatory. And what a false doctrine it is because it's not based on the Word of God at all. Next week, we're going to get into, we'll probably, cover, we'll probably cover a couple of things because the ones that we have left to talk about are not really, not big uh, doctrines necessarily, but they're important within the Catholic Church. So we'll probably try to cover, cover a couple at a time as we go through the next one, but we're going to talk about the degrees of sin next time, all right? Let's pray and we'll be done. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for... As we always do, the truth of the word of God, how simple and how plain it is. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I pray that you'd help us to share that with as many people as we can. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.